for listening to this episode of the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rob Fields. I'm the Senior Vice President, Chief Medical Officer for Population Health. Um, and I have with me today, Ashley Fitch, who is our Director of Community Health Innovations and Partnerships. So thanks, Ashley, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Ashley, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about how you landed at Sinai and why you do what you do, um, that would be great. Sure. So I've been at Sinai for about five years or so now. Um, I started on the district program, Delivery System Reform Incentive Payment, um, which is- I'm glad you remember the acronym because I never do. Yeah, that was mostly (laughs) the job interview. (laughs) You know what (laughs) district stands for? You're in. Okay, come on over. Um, You know, but started on that, um, which was a a large kind of pop health redesign initiative, um, and then worked over- to Mount Sinai Health Partners. And I had originally gotten connected with Sinai through some work I was doing at a national nonprofit, kind of working on community clinic partnerships and um, building out fruit and vegetable prescription programs. Um, And there was some interest at Sinai, so made some connections there and was really interested in kind of working on the uh, kind of the big healthcare side and seeing kind of what made larger health systems tick and kind of how to bring in social determinants and things like that. How has it been working at a large health system compared to the nonprofit world? I mean, still nonprofit, but you know, a different, different It's scale. great in terms of you have a lot of resources, you have a lot going on. It's a, it's a huge kind of operating system. Um, there's a lot to learn when you move to a big health system and figure out how all the pieces fit together. But right. I think the potential impact in you know a system like Sinai that has so many patients, so many departments and things like that is really exciting and and particularly in a place that has such a commitment to pop health. Um, You know, it's definitely different than working at a nonprofit, but I think has a lot of pros to it as well. Did you work with a lot of health systems when you worked on, on the small nonprofit side? I mean, I guess it wasn't that small, it was national, but on the, on the nonprofit. Yeah, it was, it was a mix of health systems, um, kind of big and small ones, a lot of federally qualified health centers. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked for uh, several years, um, on the Navajo Nation, which was pretty exciting. Um, yeah. And I, it was at the same time, I was actually doing some projects for Health and Hospital Corporation, or now Health and Hospitals. And so it was very interesting to be kind of flying back and forth between the two, trying to do parallel work in a lot of ways, but there were a lot of different kind of cultural norms, a lot of differences in the pace of the work, um, challenges about urban versus rural, things like that, that were um, interesting to be kind of contrasting in, in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet. I can't imagine. So now you're in this newish role. It's been boarding on a year. We're craning towards a year here. Um, I know what we conceived uh, of when we designed this role, but I'm wondering about your thoughts about how you see your role in, within Pop Health. Yeah, I think, you know, part of what drew me to this was this kind of underlying belief that, you know, people want to be healthy, they want to make good choices for themselves, they want to make good choices for their families. Um, And that's not always the easiest thing to do. And I think what I understood from this role was, we wanted to figure out new and innovative ways or even solve some seemingly simple everyday needs in people's lives that that are challenging to fit within the kind of healthcare paradigm, but really a commitment, you know, from the department and the health system to kind of help people uh, do better and meet their health goals. And so I think that that's kind of been a, a constant theme and where I've, you know, felt that we always have alignment is, you know, let's figure some of this stuff out um, and let's figure it out in a way that has 
more of a long-term sustainability mindset to it that, you know, there are a lot of pilot programs that are fantastic and they have great impact, but they're short-lived. And, you know, what we really want to think about is, you know, how do we figure out that long-term mechanism, that sort of structural change that's going to allow us to do this kind of, um, and get, hopefully get reimbursed for it. Yeah. So that's, that was your thought as you took this job. Has it been true or did we lie to you? (laughs) Uh, No, I think it is. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, one of the nice things about the mix in this job is that I get to do a fair amount of sort of on the ground program Mm -hmm. work and um, establishing partnerships with different community-based organizations and thinking about and understanding, you know, what do different community members want? What do they need? Things like that. Um, But also, you know, I've already had the chance to work with some of our payers to figure out, okay, how would we reimburse for some of this? Um, You know, as you know, well, we're doing a lot of work in the back end around trying to figure out how do we build in decodes for social determinants? How do we roll out or standardize assessment? What does it look like to make closed group referrals and things like that? So, um, you know, I've always kind of enjoyed being able to work on on different levels. And I think, you know, that's been, um, exciting and, and certainly, you know, challenging at the same time, which, which is great. Yeah. One of the things that I, I know that you and I have worked on is, is, um, infrastructure, uh, in terms of data and platforms and things of that nature. Are you surprised by the lack of infrastructure that exists to actually do this kind of work in healthcare or was that a known for you? And, in either way, what are you looking for in terms of the future for that? Yeah, I think I was a little, I mean, I knew it was going to be that there was going to be a lot of work that needed to be done and and that there weren't certain things in place like reimbursements for Z codes and things like that. Um, I I had thought that there would be more social determinants of health data within our EMR already, or that we would have it in a way that was more easily mineable. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's certainly been a learning curve, you know, particularly in the way that you know, we tend to go about things as very data driven. And so the first thing is like, okay, let's work with our brilliant analytics people and let's figure out what we do know. And then let's design interventions, you know, to help solve the problems. And so I think we knew less than I'd hoped we would know, but it, it created a lot of opportunity around sort of one thinking about, okay, what do we know without necessarily looking at the data? What do we think are the right things to do for people? what do we know based on what data we have and what opportunity do we have to build an infrastructure that is really aligned with the goals that we're trying to accomplish. Um, But yeah, I mean, the short answer is, yeah, it was, it's certainly been tricky to try to figure out some of this about as robust data as we're used to for some of our other, you know, quality initiatives or things like that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm a primary care physician and, and obviously practice for almost 20 years before taking this job and I started going back into practice. And I have a pretty good sense as to why um, that data is not captured as a matter of course in a typical primary care day or um, in at least some sense of why it doesn't happen in the specialty world. But as a a non-physician, what would be your expectation, not only as a leader in this space, but also as a consumer, were you expecting, it sounds like you maybe were expecting that more of it was being collected than actually was? I guess I thought more of it would be collected, but there'd be other data sources that we could kind of mm. repurpose. And, yeah. um, you know, I think there's a, there's a fair amount of research out there around the kind of screen and treat conundrum. And so I think that makes yeah. a lot of sense in terms of, you know, 
one, people don't want to ask the question if they don't have a resource to back it up. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a, somewhat of a lack of, of uh, sometimes discomfort or um, it's just hard to change everyday routines, you know, the change management component that goes into it. And, and a lot of change, I think, is, is driven by financial imperatives or incentives or policy changes and things like that. And, um, you know, when I started this work kind of in this field, 15 years ago or so, you know, it was a very different dialogue. It was, you know, going into boardrooms or conference rooms with healthcare executives and trying to explain why social determinants matter, you know, why they should right. care about if their right. patients are, are hungry. And so I think, you know, what's very different is now there seems to be kind of a consensus that we need to do this, we should do this. And it's more about figuring out how and so I think if you think about that evolution in, in a relatively kind of short amount of time in the history of our healthcare system, you can understand why the data is not there in the same way that it right. would be otherwise for what we're used to kind of documenting. But yeah, um, I think as sense. as a like an individual and a patient, um, and when you think about like your day to day to day life and the things that people care about and Maslow's and all of that, mm -hmm. you know, there is sort of that moment of hey, well, why don't we have this or why why is it just now right. kind of coming to the forefront um, of right. the way that we document or the way that we treat? Yeah. There's the other side of this, which is the, the nonprofit side, because in order to get this work done, you know, one of the things that we all realize is that it's not going to happen from the health system. We need to be community-based and involve our community partners in getting this work done. There were probably a whole host of lessons learned from DISRIP that I'm sure you're, you're taking some of those lessons in this new role. I was wondering if you might share a little bit about uh, about what those might be, at least in a big sense. Yeah, I think it's really figuring out how to explain what the goals are and why you're asking people to do things and then understand what their barriers are and provide support for that. Because I, I think, you know, those kind of fundamentals of implementation and support and change management and all that, that, you know, I think both in district and in this work, there's so many providers that just want to do the right thing. They're trying to figure it out. And either it's a, you know, a learning curve or it's a capacity constraint issue. But, you know, if you're willing to say, okay, I'm not expecting you to go from zero to hundred overnight progress is progress. And let's just figure out how we can, you know, break off small chunks of work and get some of those small wins. And then I think time flies, you look back and you say, Hey, look, you know, this district has gone five years and, you know, look at all the things that were accomplished. Um, and I think it's kind of the same in this area of it's not going to, we're not just going to flip a switch and everything's going to look different, right. but if we can keep, yeah. you know, continually making progress and making change and, you know, helping to articulate why we're doing it. And, um, you know, one thing I particularly noticed in, in some of the previous work, you know, kind of bringing CBOs and, and health systems together was it was sometimes it was either, even just about learning how to speak the same language and it's like, oh, we actually have all of these goals that are aligned and we just needed to get in a room together and, and, you know, have someone help kind of articulate the value proposition for each side. And now that we've gotten over that hurdle, we have a lasting relationship and we can figure out how to do this. And, and sometimes it's just breaking down those barriers a little bit. Yeah. I, it, it occurs to me, there's uh, one of the barriers to overcome. I mean, I, I think you're right about all those things. The common language is really important and, and shared goals, all those things, but even getting to that point, it, it occurs to me the the major trust issues that exist between 
health systems and the community at large, but certainly nonprofits are as part of the community are not immune to that either for good reason. You know, health systems have not always behaved and, and still often do not behave in a just fashion and as it relates to the communities around them. Um, but I, I know that there is a willingness and a hope to, to try to change that relationship. How, how do you see that playing out? And, you know, maybe, or what do you think is necessary when you encounter that sort of trust issue, that trust barrier having to get through? How do you try to deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I think one, acknowledging that that issue is there and that it's justified. Um, and I think, you know, the sometimes the community-based organizations just have been really undervalued and haven't had a place and haven't had a, a way to break in. And I think acknowledging from the get-go their, their value and the work that they've already done. Um, and I think a lot, you know, trying to figure out what should be, what should be in the community, what's either already happening and should stay there and needs to be supported or what's happening within our, you know, quote, four walls mm -hmm. that actually could be shifted or could be better addressed sort of in the community um, kind of goes a long way. And, and I think it's, you know, a lot of it's just listening, you know, and, and the same thing of, okay, I can't guarantee that, you know, we're going to, you know, have the payment structure, we're going to have this, but I, I, you know, sort of fundamentally as a, as an optimist feel like there's always some way to make it better. And if we can all just kind of sit and listen and brainstorm and reach some common ground, like we will find a way to make it better. And if we can just keep building on that and building on that, um, you know, it takes time. Yeah, for sure. Um, you, you've mentioned a few barriers that I know we have encountered in this work on the, on the nonprofit side in terms of capacity. You mentioned it, you know, briefly in some of the comments of a couple of minutes ago, you know, we, I know that we have a shared vision of trying to partner with a, um, you know, food assistance program, food pantry, or a community health worker organization in the same way that we would partner with, you know, a more traditional medical agency, home health or anything like that. Sounds good on paper, but getting there, obviously there are issues in terms of capacity of um, infrastructure on the nonprofit side too. How do you, how have you observed that changing or how are they responding? Certainly at least in the city, um, the folks we work with. I think there's, more and more recognition that data is important um, and you've got to have some sort of infrastructure or plan or willingness to sort of participate in the data game because I think you know you have to be able to track at least something around either who's being referred mm -hmm. what kind of services the rate at which you're able to sort of close that loop things like that um, you know, I think it, it, it varies from CBO to CBO, whether they already have a robust, you know, data tracking system in place versus they have someone who's really good with Excel versus they just have a willingness to do whatever it takes to, to make it work. Um, but I would say kind of broadly, there's an understanding that, you know, you, you've got to be willing to participate sort of on, on the data. And I think that, um, you know, that there is a feeling of there's a lot of opportunity and CBO spend a lot of time kind of chasing grants and, Right. Uh, grants are great, but they often come with a lot of strings and, right. you know, you can end up in a position where by the time you've gotten through all the reporting and the requirements and things like that, you might be looking back and saying, was this actually really worth the money that we got? <laughs> we exerted, exerted more effort than we might be getting, right. you know, in funding, um, right. but that, you know, health systems might be more sustainable kind of long-term sources of funding. Um, and so I think that there's kind of growing, interest and acknowledgement that and desire for partnership that I think creates a, a strong foundation. But 
I think does go back to some of those trust issues around if you look at the type of money that health systems have and are used to and the type of money that a lot of CBOs have and are used to, um, you know, and, and, you know, health systems are sort of not willing to initially pay out and things like that. I think there's right. it's hard to bridge that gap of, well, you guys have, you know, this range of, of funding and that's just sure. so different. We don't really understand why you can't um, be more supportive of programming and things like that. Yeah. Um, in the last several minutes, so I had, had two questions. One was uh, your opinion. So I, I brought this up in the, my MHA class about the increasing use of data, commercially available data, um, that includes a lot of social determinants data into healthcare for the use of predictive analytics and for care management, care coordination, and actually to for strategic planning, a lot of the things that you're working on. And that's something that we are um, implementing is, is partnering with a, a vendor um, to get commercial data. But the discussion we had in the, in the class, and I'm wondering about your opinion on this as a leader in this space is, gosh, you know, we have come to accept using that sort of data for marketing purposes. It happens to us all the time, right? We get emails, we get texts, we get ads, all sorts of things that are personalized to our search history, for example, and things like that. But there seems to at least some section of, of uh, the, the graduate students that were concerned about using this data for medical reasons and even for predictive analytics or for planning. And I'm wondering about your take on the balance between privacy of this sort of non-traditional healthcare data and, and the type of big goals and positive impact that we're trying to have on the community. How you see that if there's a tension or conflict there or how we might. For sure. I mean, I think it's very powerful and very creepy. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think the way that both can be true. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that there's kind of a distinction in how much you use it on the individual level and target mm-hmm. and make decisions and pigeonhole people versus thinking about at the aggregate level. And I know, um, particularly for us, we're trying to better understand sort of at the aggregate level, yeah. what are the larger needs of the community and our patients and so that we can build strategies to support that. And then more of the kind of referral mechanism or the identification um, comes from a more one-on-one interaction, whether that's you know, through a provider or mm-hmm. someone on our care management team. Um, but it's a huge amount of data. And I think it's, you know, for better, or for worse, it's out there. And I think, you know, we're trying to use it for good and not, and not evil. And yeah, I think sure. we have, you know, p- you know, people on our team who are, you know, particularly on our data analytics and otherwise who, you know, are very strong ethically, but I could certainly see how it could, can and probably is used, um, maybe even within the healthcare space for, for different time, types of sure. targeting and things like that. But um, I think in terms of the way that we're thinking about it, I feel comfortable. Otherwise, if I wasn't yeah, comfortable, you know, we'd be no, having different yeah. discussions. Yeah, yeah. But there's just so much, so much data out there and so many ways to manipulate it. So yeah, I don't think it's going on, away. On the good team. Certainly not. It's not going away. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, certainly if you think about it, you know, we're off topic, but, you know, the polling and things like that, you know, we're just coming off of an election and, you know, the shock and awe around the the polls being unreliable. And I think, well, you know, this is something that's based around calling people at home. And, you know, if anyone said, I'm going to call you at home on your landline, it would just (laughs) sound like they're only out to reach their grandmother, you know, a little antiquated. So I think, you know, as partially an effort to, to be continually 
evolving and moving with the times. And that's kind of a, a reality and an opportunity. Yeah. It is still amazing to me how we just accept it everywhere else other than healthcare, like healthcare in so many ways. I think New York in particular, you know, there's, there are so many funny things about this area in terms of data, like the opt-in status for HIE, for instance. And, mm-hmm. but, but thinking about this SDH data too, healthcare seems like this sort of protected space that nobody wants to touch, but we accept it in a million other ways on our phones and everything else. It's just a, it's sort of a funny. Um, well, it feels like there's something about the healthcare delivery part of it that you, you know, you feel like you should have ownership over your body, right. over your well-being, right. and right. all of that. And so you're, the associated data kind of fits into that. Yeah, and that's a good I point. think rightfully so. Whereas the others, and you don't really have a choice. I mean, sometimes you just, you have to participate in healthcare and that's, you know, right. hopefully a good thing, but you know, some of the other stuff feels like a choice to, you know, use a social media platform or a choice to, you know, sign one of those user agreements. And, yeah. you know, I think <laughs> if we all really sat down and talked about whether or not we wanted to click agree, we would probably or agree that no. we don't want to, right. but, you know, <laughs> There isn't really much of an alternative. It doesn't seem like it. Yeah. Um, so my last question is uh, thinking about, you know, budgets aside and politics aside, if you had uh, some top social gaps, you know, top priority social gaps you want to work on over the next couple of years, again, in, in this context, in the healthcare context, budget aside, politics, all that stuff aside, what would those be? Like, what, what's your dream list? I think food insecurity is is top of the list. Um, I know we've been talking about it kind of from two different angles. Um, one, how we can provide kind of emergency food assistance during transitions of care and, and really thinking about kind of those times in people's life where, you know, we, we've got to support them. Maybe they're just being discharged from the hospital. They're going home. Either they don't have a full fridge because they've been in the hospital. They don't have a full fridge because they don't have the resources. Um, and what can we do kind of to, you know, to help address that food insecurity and then also create a path towards having more sustainable access? Um, I think under that kind of food security or that food realm, um, I would also put medically tailored meals. I think there's just been kind of tremendous evidence around how effective they are um, and what a kind of positive impact they, they have on people's lives. I know the, the other area that we've talked about a lot is sort of more equitable access to care. And, and that's a pretty large umbrella, but I think there's a lot we can kind of immediately do to address disparities and kind of the digital divide, particularly in this time where so many of us are at home and, you know, there are benefits to accessing telehealth and care virtually. Um, and I think other things like transportation, I mean, I think it's a big barrier for, for people. If you, you may want to get to that appointment, but it's extremely costly, um, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, if we can help people get where they're trying to go kind of physically and emotionally, you know, that's a, that's a big part of the battle. Um, and I think housing, you know, housing is, is one that's a lot more complicated. Um, but you know, just basic stuff in people's lives. If you don't have a roof over your head, if you don't have, you know, food that you can count on, um, it's really hard to think about anything else and, you know, whatever we can do to think to help make a dent in those areas are going to help people kind of be happier more successful in achieving their other health goals. Yeah. Sounds like a good list. So we got to keep us busy for a little while. Yeah. I was going to say we have until Christmas. No. um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually I appreciate your time today and the work that you're doing. I know we're real excited to have you on our leadership team and, and moving things forward. So appreciate what you do. 
Likewise, this has been great. So thanks everyone for listening. And if you have ideas for future podcasts, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Thank you.